The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, hi everybody and welcome to the first Early Modern Seminar of 2022. We have a very exciting lineup this semester and it's being kicked off today by Oliver Finnegan. So we're absolutely delighted to welcome you, Oliver, at least um, virtually to the, to the seminar and thanks for joining us. Um, Oliver completed his doctorate at the University of Cambridge and he's been a postdoctoral research associate at the Karl von Ossietzky, I hope I said that right, uh, University of Oldenburg in, in Germany, where he worked on the large scale digitization of the prize papers. And he's currently the prize papers records specialist at the UK National Archives at Kew and working predominantly on papers um, related to the High Court of Admiralty. And as well as this, he continues his own research, which is focused at the moment on Irish Catholics in the Caribbean in the 1690s and their roles as commercial intermediaries between French and English islands. And today he's going to talk about the hugely exciting Prize Papers project, which is a major collaborative effort uh, between the University of Oldenburg in Germany and the National Archives um, of the UK. And it deals with cataloging and digitizing thousands of maritime records and also artifacts that can illuminate on life and various interactions around the globe in the early modern period. But today's focus, just for us, will be on the Irish material in the in the records, which I'm sure everybody um, here is very eager to um, to hear about. And certainly for for me, Oliver, someone who's worked on maritime sources in the past and dipped into those records, I'm really um, very eagerly anticipating um, this this paper in particular. So I'll hand over to to Oliver now, and just a reminder that questions um, can go in the Q and A. Use the Q and A button to add questions at the end of the of the paper. So over to you, Oliver. Thank you very much, Susan. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for organizing um, this for me. It's been a very smooth experience. I also like to thank um, Patrick Walsh for um, originally agreeing to let me speak here for you all. So I'm going to begin by just sharing my screen for you. Yeah. And then we will load the slideshow. Is it visible? Yeah, perfect. Visible. Okay, I'll get started. Um, so I've often had conversations with uh, Irish historians over the past few years where we talk about uh, the High Court of Admiralty uh, records. And often the way this conversation goes uh, is a little bit like what we talked about, uh, Susan just talked about here, is that we say, they say, oh, there's lots of fantastic material in there for Irish history. I'd love to use it more, but you know, it's quite, it's quite challenging to navigate in many ways. Um, and as I've done my work on the prize papers, which is part of the High Court of Admiralty's um, collection, I have consistently found that there's a, a multitude of very interesting material relating to the history of Ireland and Irish people overseas as well, as well as seafaring um, as I've gone through the collection. So what I'm hoping to do for you today is give you an overview of really what we have, some of the work we're doing to make this collection, the prize collection, more accessible to people, researchers, both physically at the National Archives and through our eventual online portal. Um, and just really get people thinking about 
how this could be valuable for their own particular research areas. So it's going to be a presentation effectively of two halves. The first is going to be a general overview of the prize papers, including the current project, Digitize the Collection. So I'm going to talk about what the prize papers are, why we have them, and the current work that we're undertaking at the National Archives with the University of Oldenburg to make these available online and in open access. I'm then going to move on to the particular, particularly Irish sections of the collection um, and particularly focus on the Irish overseas. And I'm going to begin with a section of kind of data on sort of like how many ships we're talking about the papers came from. And then I'm going to go through a series of representative examples of the kinds of papers that we have so that you can all see um, exactly the kinds of material we're speaking of. So I want to begin with the obvious kinds of the obvious question, which is what exactly the prize papers are and why a collection like this should be housed at the UK um, National Archives. So the first thing that people generally think about when we talk about this collection is letters. Um, and on the right, I've got a picture of one of our boxes of letters we have um, here. This is part of a collection from a Spanish ship called La Perla, which was captured in 1779. And this is around 6,000 letters sent from Peru to Cadiz. A fantastic, a fantastic collection there. We also um, contain a large amount of uh, artifacts. So objects, generally objects that were enclosed in letters or came from ships, things like tools. On the bottom right here, we've got a collection. Uh, we've got a set of kind of colorful uh, beads, which came from a French slave, slave ship. Originally, these beads we found were made in Rotterdam. Um, and they ended from about 1738. Um, and they were used to barter for enslaved people on the Guinea coast. To the left and at the bottom, we have what we would call an example of ship's papers. The left-hand side, this is uh, what's known as a Schatkema, which is uh, in Dutch. And this is a collection of um, essentially navigation exercises, manuscript navigation exercises that sailors completed as part of their training. And they would transcribe them from somebody else probably who was on the ship. And at the bottom, kind of this sort of official paperwork that we tend to get, um, a receipt for fees paid for, it's called lighthouse fees. They're paid towards the maintenance of a lighthouse when you go past. This is for a lighthouse in Cornwall and uh, the official documentation, the receipt includes a map of the, the Fal estuary not far, from, uh, not far from where I grew up. So speaking purely in content terms, what would I say the prize papers is? It's a very large collection of letters, ships papers, personal effects and many other materials written in most major world languages created between the 17th and 19th centuries. That's purely in contents term. So we're thinking a lot of material here that's not in English um, or from ships that non-English ships or not also Irish ships as well. Why would they be at the UK National Archives, which generally you would think of as housing UK government records and before that, English government records. So to understand this, we have to think about a bureaucratic process that essentially emerged during the early modern period, namely the English and later British state gradually assuming the rights to arbitrate commercial reprisals, that is, private attempts to secure restitution for allegedly unjust commercial losses. So these would be if a merchant felt that they had been wronged by a merchant who lived in a port very far away, who was a subject of a different sovereign, they might have some kind of customary non-legal right initially to seize possessions from said merchant. Yet from around the 12th century, 
sovereigns began to institute shared legal codes to determine whether the, good, the seizure of goods in these cases were legitimate. And then I particularly want to reference the roles of Oleron here, um, which got translated into uh, the English High Court of Admiralty here with something called the Black Book of the Admiralty. Show an image of here, beautiful um, illuminated manuscript mid 15th century at the National Archives. The earliest example of a Black Book of the Admiralty that exists. Um, and these were essentially used by Admiralty advocates based on the roles of Oleron agreements between medieval sovereigns, effectively. During the 16th century, English monarchs in this case, with relation to the English High Court of Admiralty, uh, integrated a formalized system of reprisal into wartime strategies. They would issue commissions of general reprisal to ship's captains, and these letters, you might know them as letters of mark later on, which permitted that private ship to capture enemy shipping or cargo, and then admiralty courts, in this case, the English High Court of Admiralty, was established in 1535, and then with new laws, um, 1536, some clarifications. And they would, admiralty courts would judge whether any given capture was legal or illegal. Um, by the 17th century, the Admiralty Court developed effect effectively a separate jurisdiction that only dealt with prize cases. They called them prize cases um, based on the vernacular word prize, meaning a captured ship. And these were prize courts, courts which relate to the taking of prize. Cases in this court in essentially involved uh, private ships which were granted commissions, i.e. letters of mark, or indeed naval vessels, they would be required to present any documents that they seized off any, any ship as kinds of evidence in that case. And the objective of the papers that they seized off the ship was that they would prove that the ship or enemy cargo, the enemy um, or cargo on the ship were that of an enemy sovereign. So in an example, um, if England and Spain were at war, then um, they would be English, English ships with letters of mark would have the right to seize Spanish ships. One ship, would, an English ship would seize a Spanish ship, bring said Spanish ship into a port in England or in some cases in Ireland. Um, and then they would take the papers off that ship. And that would be evidence in the court case that was designed to prove that that was, that was enemy cargo or an enemy vessel. So now we move from our kind of content terms to legal terms of what the prize papers is. The prize papers are actually exhibits and procedural documents resulting from cases in prize jurisdiction at the English High Court of Admiralty. As far as we know, the English High Court of Admiralty is the only such prize court to retain original papers from ships after a case was resolved. There are prize courts in many other European countries, um, but as far as we know, they didn't retain the papers. We don't quite know why that is just yet. And I really want to flag up why I think the prize papers are of a kind of significant historical value. And the first point that I would really stress is that they, they have very much a bureaucratic logic of collection resulting from, you know, and this results in the retention of a lot of different kinds of papers that many contemporaries would have considered ephemeral or of little value. These often aren't the papers of people who are considered at the time to be terribly important. So as a result, they're a fantastic resource for the lives of ordinary people. This is also a fantastically polyglot collection. It has documents in almost all major world languages that originate on every continent. So it's an important archive for global history. We also can move on to the idea of its portrayal of European empires, which is a, is a strong theme that moves through the prize papers. 
And it really provides a kind of relational view of early modern empires. You see empire from the perspective of the ships, the networks, the people, and the everyday exchanges that enabled them to function. So if this is a, such a fantastic collection, then we have to wonder why have they really not been used? We've kind of hit, hinted at this already, but um, I really want to start with the cataloging, which in the top left, I've got a catalog description for you here, which simply shows you the reference number HCA, that's High Court of Admiralty um, 30, which is our miscellaneous collection 266. And the description is simply Dutch. Uh, no further cataloging that with some dates. And I'm reliably informed that if you, uh, if you would all were to order this box up, you would be presented with a large number of letters in Spanish. Um, and there are reasons for that. But um, obviously, you would have to know to look in prize papers at the National Archives. And then you would have to know to order a collection which is simply catalogued as Dutch to get Spanish letters. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody would have ever done it. So poor cataloging is one of the primary reasons why nobody has used it. If you were to get to a point where you ordered a box up and you thought it was valuable, then you might be presented like an image like this below. A large amount of letters kind of bulging out of a box. We've still got the sack in the box that um, they, some of them were sent in. And you wouldn't know who these letters are from. They'll be in different languages, different places. There's every chance that those are probably taken from different ships. So nobody sorted them completely unusable. You do what most people did. In fact, what I did when I was doing my PhD, which was you order up a box of prize collection, you lift the lid off, you see something like that. You don't have time, you put it back on again. So this is a consistent theme as well. You also have records that are simply absolutely filthy, disgusting, um, very, very dirty, never been cleaned, covered in soot, possibly from when they were kept um, in the basement of the Tower of London for a long time when there were fires, unclear. Um, and in a lot of cases, you get the impression that the papers were simply taken from a burlip sack in the doc in Doctors' Commons where the Admiralty lawyers gathered. Um, and then they were dumped into an archive box. And that is the extent of the cataloging that they've ever had is to say their date. We also have a large number of records that are actually very endangered. Um, on the right-hand side, we've got a very uh, letter here, which is actually very fragile, not quite conveyed by the image, but ready to break apart um, along the fold lines. So what we have is a collection that has consistently deterred, uh, de deterred researchers by its complex ability and also its complexity and its inaccessibility. We often think that we're doing a kind of archeology span when we go through this connection, you're really rooting in, you're really digging in. So this is where the Prize Papers project comes in. We have this collection and the, the project itself intends to make this collection as accessible as it can be. So the Prize Papers project, um, is a British-German collaboration between the National Archives and the University of Oldenburg, or Karl von Ossetsky University, funded by the German Göttingen Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, directed or uh, directed by Professor Dagmar Freist. As you can see from the date range up here, 2018 to 2023, this is actually a 20-year project, and we're intending to catalogue and to digitise the prize papers to a document level, which would mean that all of these letters that you see in the box on the bottom left here would have an entry, a description, who sent it, etc. And we, we are hoping to, the scope of the project includes around 4,800 boxes of such material. That's probably around half a million or more documents and objects. And if we were to talk about 
the exact series in the National Archives we're talking about, I've listed them up here under project names, which is HCA 32, that's the core prize papers for the main captures, that's the kind of everyday papers, HCA 30, which is our very large collections of mail in transit included in there, HCA 45, printed prize appeals from vice admiralty courts, so prize cases that took place in places like Jamaica or New York, as opposed to anywhere else. HCA 65, these are um, extracted uh, objects, artifacts, effectively. And the collection is such that because everything was seized during wars and the papers are the result of captures during wars, um, you only get papers when wars were happening. When England was at war, we have papers in the prize papers. When they were not, there is a gap. So when, during the Anglo-Dutch wars, you'll get enormous amounts of papers for that period. And then when the third Anglo-Dutch war finishes, there is a gap until 1688 when the Nine Years' War started. And then after that, papers for the Spanish um, War of the Spanish Succession, War of the Austrian Succession, Seven Years' War. You get the idea. <clears throat> In terms of resources, uh, the project itself has taken around, uh, the Oldenburg project's been allocated around 20 million euros for the 20-year 20, 20 year period, plus additional resources granted from the National Archives and ongoing support for our web portal, which will be created after the uh, grant expires. That's critical in digital humanities projects. At any one time, we employ around 20, 20 staff and volunteers working on the project. And here I've got a little, a, a small depiction of our workflow, starting with um, sorting at the National Archives, which is done by, vo by volunteers that take those pa disordered papers in the box, organize them by the ship that they're taken from, They'll then be sort of sorted through and catalogued by specialists at National Archives by myself, conserved, so any repair work that needs to be done, and imaged by photographers, at which point it will be sent over to the, to, to the University of Oldenburg, where they QA the images, generate huge amounts of metadata to make the material searchable online, finally upload it to um, the web portal. Beyond this side of the project, we also have an important uh, research aspect of what we do. Um, probably one of our primary focuses is academic partnerships. For example, we work with the Flanders Marine Institute to digitize large collections of later 18th century material in Flemish, which has been uh, has now been transcribed. We also worked on something which may be familiar to some of you, which is the Bordeaux Dublin letters initiated by um, Tom Trux's transcriptions of absolutely superb material from the Seven Years' War, a ship called Two Sisters of Dublin which has been published, uh, he's published much of it in a, in a volume plus uh, with, with essays on the same subject. He will soon be releasing um, a similar collection of material from the Amity of Leadership called the Amity of Limerick from 1691. Lastly, I would say that we, we now have a recent partnership with Slave Voyages, which is a, uh, which is a huge database cataloging transatlantic slave trade, um, which are using a lot of our records to find voyages that they didn't know existed before or other details. We also fund research posts, which include three PhD positions on the Oldenburg side to conduct research in different languages and time periods, which brings expertise to the larger collection digitization, uh, plus ad hoc internships and placements when we have certain kinds of expertise that are required. A lot of different languages, a lot of different places, you require a lot of different uh, specialists. There's also a strong material culture element to what the prize papers does, a long-standing interest in kind of postal history and also letter folding materiality of letters that we've been working on. And we recently had a fa um, money at the National Archives funded to work on the chintz fabrics from India that we have in the collection. 
Finally, there's an outreach component to what the prize papers does. Uh, there will soon be um, a conference on uh, materiality and global history at the uh, German Historical Institute in collaboration with the prize papers, which I urge you to have a look at if that's if that's of interest. We also hold workshops, engagement with newspapers, that sort of thing. And we will be working on a prospective exhibition for the future. So all kinds of outreach activities as well that grow all of the time. So what will that, what, to give you an idea of what some of the outputs of the project will be, our efforts at the National Archives will result in updated cataloging that will make these records accessible. Here I have given you a catalog entry. This is one of mine um, for the a ship called the Elizabeth of Wexford. And whereas before this would have said, simply told you, you look this up in the catalogue and it would have said ships beginning with E prize papers, and that would have been it. Now you have a full description of the ship and its voyage, including, so it will tell you here, that it's an Irish merchant vessel, allegedly bound from Rotterdam to Dublin, but proved by papers hidden in the forecastle to be bound from Bordeaux to Dublin. So they had, they had um, false papers basically, which is why it was captured by privateers laden with brandy, wine, rosin, vinegar, cork, hemp, etc., and taken by an English privateer and went to Guernsey. And then we list a lot of the court process and the prize case, court documents, court papers, and the verdict, plus a brief summary in our catalogue of the ship's papers involved. So here we're talking about sh ship's papers, six personal letters uh, in English from men and women to Wexford, London and Glasgow, uh, ships, French, French ships pass, and ransom bills, various things. But I would say that the ship's papers that we're dealing with are going to be catalogued in detail and made really, truly searchable in a kind of granular way when they are in the online web portal as they've been dealt with in Oldenburg. As much as I wish I could give you a better sample of the prize papers portal that exists, all I have is some, some screenshots from our alpha because the portal does not go live until the 22nd of February, 2022. So very soon, in fact, uh, less than a month. On the left-hand side, you're giving you an idea of some of the categories that you'll be able to start searching the database for online. They will be, will be searchable within these categories. So you can search the collection by the documents, details of the ship, aspects of the court processes in the prize court. You can search by the type of document, subjects included in the document, material features, and then things like general search terms as well. But the metadata will go deeper than this. These are our kind of basic metadata terms. When we go live, uh, the only thing online will be our, um, what these are printed um, appeal books, appeals from vice admiralty courts. They'll be the first thing that we have in there. They will include transcriptions of original documents, uh, court cases, and ship's papers taken from vice admiralty courts all across the world. And then a particular relevance here, within two to three months, we will have a second release of material. So sometime um, sort of April, May time of um, original materials, manuscript material from HCA 32, which will include a large amount of material from Irish ships something to worth noting down. So now I want to get to the got to the point where I'd like to move it move specifically into the Irish material that we have now that I've covered the project. Um, and I would just want to highlight four different points and areas where I really think that um, it adds something to the existing source base for, for Irish history. 
I think that one of the things we really have that's worth stressing is we've got a significant amount of material in French, Spanish and Dutch, which relates to Irish history and Irish people. And when researchers use our material, it's worth noting that they often link it to other archives in continental Europe. So if you have a if you have the language competency, there's an awful lot there to be explored and a lot of new characters you can kind of encounter that aren't necessarily within the um, within the uh, haven't been included in history writing thus far. You also have the empire element to it and you can explore how empires shape the lives of people of Ireland and in turn how Irish people shaped European empires and I would say that this is especially Irish Catholics we actually end up with remarkably few Irish Protestants in this in this collection and this includes their role in the transatlantic slave trade. You can also approach the collection from looking at kind of overseas dimensions to the island's domestic history um, particularly the conflicts arising from British plantation and colonization in, in the 17th century. You can think of this through the kind of back and forth migration you can observe in the prize papers, a lot of the trade links, developing export markets you can observe, and all kinds of familial networks spread off out across the globe. You also get significant details of life in Ireland's coastal communities, including the lives of sailors and especially the commercial roles of particular ports. Now what I'd like to do is move on. I'm just gonna, I crunched some of the data from our collection that we, that we had. I'd like to talk you through some of that to give you an idea of how many ships we're talking about um, overall that are in this collection. I would say that the vessels that are captured are, it's a wide range of material, but it's actually very particular because all of these ships that are captured, these are Irish ships in this case that we're talking about here, um, were taken by privateers and there had to be a logic for why those ships were taken. There had to be a war in which Irish ships were involved and could be carrying what English and later British privateers considered enemy cargo. There has to be a reason for them to be taken and this produces very specific bodies of records at times. The data that I have here, I would stress, is a work in progress and these numbers will only increase. So these are absolutely floor numbers that will increase. This is just from our current cataloging data that we found so far. This is data extracted from depositions in HCA 32 and contemporary indexes in IND 9013-9016, should anybody be interested. So what we're looking at here is um, effectively a grid of origins of uh, ships that have been identified as Irish and then captured as enemy ships by British vessels or as carrying enemy cargo. So what I can say, what I can say from here is that the data shows that there's a clear preference for capturing ships originating from ports, uh, from what we might think of as kind of like southern ports or ranging from Dublin south across the Munster coast all the way up to Galway. That is where the majority of these ships, uh, the, ship, the Irish ships captured originated. We're actually looking at a very limited number of vessels coming from um, Ulster that have been captured for this period. Um, I should note that the period we're talking about here is 1652 to 1748, so any period of warfare between those dates. So not that many from Ulster, nine out of 160. There's also a clear focus of captures of vessels coming from Cork and from Dublin. This is possibly a reflection of the increased commercial activity of those ports during the 18th during the 18th century. And if I'd start breaking this data down by the time periods or the various wars that we have um, contain, contained in the prize papers, 
you've got limited captures of Irish ships during the Anglo-Dutch Wars, which is perhaps a reflection of the focus of privateers on naval ships, um, Dutch ships in the North Sea, where there would have been perhaps less Irish commercial traffic. And then obviously we see a significant uptick in the capture of Irish ships during the period of the Nine Years' War and the Spanish Succession era, um, obviously as a result of the Jacobite War in Ireland originally, and then the ongoing connections between France and Ireland that continued even after the embargoes um, were brought in by the British Crown in that period. There's also a very limited number of ships, it looks like, for the War of Austrian Succession period, which is the 1740s, but I would stress that in this period, um, a lot of the business is taken into vice admiralty courts further away, and as a result, the papers won't end up in the National Archives in the UK. They will be in an archive wherever the vice admiralty court was, be it Jamaica or Antigua or Gibraltar. Um, so it's not necessarily reflective of the decreased number of number captured. Also, by the period of the War of the Austrian Succession, you see a lot of Irish sailors and Irish captains on French and Spanish ships that wouldn't be recorded here under this data of Irish ships. So an increase um, from the mid 17th century into the early 18th century, and then perhaps a small decrease, but decrease, but with more varied Irish material being found in other collections other than from uh, the material taken from Irish ships. Looking at the data for destination, quite slightly overwhelming set of data here. Um, as a as a caution, I have the uh, the material from the Nine Years' War here is incomplete, so it only records 19 ships with destinations here. But that's because that's ongoing um, data collection we're doing. It'd probably be something like if you double that number or even triple it, you'll get something closer to the actual figure. Now what, this now, what this shows us is the destinations of the Irish ships that were captured and have papers in the, in the prize collection. And it shows that they're, they're particularly rich in material for Irish links with French ports, for example. Of the 24, uh, 24 ships, Irish ships captured during the War of the Spanish Succession period, out of 64 uh, were bound to French ports. That's about 35% of the ships captured doing that. We're also looking at quite a range of connections to Spanish ports, but focused on the Basque country, that, that is Bilbao, San Sebastian and the Canary Islands, some of that unsurprising considering the large amount, large Irish communities in each. There are some examples of Caribbean and Northern American destinations. We look here, we've got places like Montserrat, Barbados, Jamaica, they're relatively small in number at the moment, around 15 overall recorded and catalogued along with we can also see a scattering of consistent uh, scattering but consistent set of records on trade with dutch ports um, and then a, a surprisingly large amount of uh, captures of ships trading to lisbon actually um, so overall irish ships in the prize papers we have to think of as mostly being those that were captured while trading with continental europe but to a lesser extent also destinations in the americas in each of the each of these cases each of these captures we will have a minimum of legal cases legal papers but in most cases you also have papers taken from the ships which might not sometimes number in the hundreds or even thousands but and here is a qualification irish material could be found on ships trading under any flag to any destination in the prize papers it's just uh, at a far lower frequency you're pretty much guaranteed to hit relevant material when the ship was based in ireland so now I want to move on to some examples of the sorts of papers, visual examples, the actual documents themselves that we have in the collection. 
And I'm going to run us through the four different categories of documents that we might find moving from the most common documents types of document to the least common. So the first is court papers, and then we have ships papers, and then we might talk a bit about personal archives, and then mail in transit, last of all. So starting with our court papers, which would essentially be legal papers produced by representatives to the Admiralty Court at various stages when it was judging the legality of a capture. These are our most common, but in some ways least loved documents that we have in the collection. And these are something that every single capture will have at least some of. Particularly interesting in what I'm displaying here are the depositions. Now, what were the depositions in prize cases? They effectively, when any captured ship was brought into a port in England, or in some cases in ports in Ireland, by a British naval ship or privateer, they will, the sailors will be taken off the ship, taken to the nearest tavern, and agents of the Admiralty Court will question those sailors from the captured ship um, using a standard set of questions. And that will tell you about where the ship's been, um, who the people on the ship are, who the ship's owners, things like that. So I've got you an example here of um, a sailor called Walter Dean, uh, who was taken from the ship, uh, the ship Diligence of London. So he actually came from an English ship and their ship was brought, in, uh, was brought into Dover in 1746. So this is Walter's deposition taken at the Golden Lion Tavern, as it said, on the 19th of April. So the first thing that they, could, that they always show us here is that you get personal, almost like biographical details of the person being interviewed. So here we've got a statement that uh, Walter was 24 and he was born in Galway, but now resides at Cork. Then we have details which talk about the capture of the ship. In this case, it was captured by an English privateer called the Eagle while it was at anchor in Dover. So there's some kind of um, suspicion of uh, some kind of suspicion of smuggling if it was captured at anchor while in port, I would say. Uh, in this case, whenever a ship was taken off to some kind of fight or a conflict, you get this particularly when naval ships capture other naval ships. You'll get details of the, in the engagement here as well. Next, the depositions reveal who owned the ship. In this, in this case, the diligence was owned by Randall Wistrop and William Bustard, both of whom lived at Cork Merchants, presumably. And then notes the number of uh, crew on board, states that you had a crew with two from England, two from Ireland, and two from Scotland, so a kind of all-island crew here. And uh, some of these boarded at Cork, while others came on board at St Eustatius in the Caribbean, and also at Dover, so they also came onto the ship at different points. And finally, you get quite detailed descriptions of the voyage itself. This ship's voyage began at St Eustatius, according to the deponent, um, in September 1745. They took on sugar, lignum and barrel staves um, and intended to sail to Rotterdam. All of the cargo belonged to the owners of Cork. So this is merchants in Cork using an English ship to trade between the Dutch Caribbean and Rotterdam. An interesting detail also stated here is that the two vessels owners are Protestant and that the sailor is Catholic. That is a detail that the depositions always include. So these depositions are a fantastic source of information overall, but in particular, you've got to think of them as being something that's very valuable for the life at, uh, for life at sea and trade. And we have absolutely vast quantities of these um, in the collection. Now we have other court papers, but the only other ones I really want to draw attention to here um, are appeal papers. 
which um, came from the uh, which we have a number of appeals which came from the Irish High Court of Admiralty and various vice admiralties. So when a case was disputed, you would get the papers would be the case would be written up, and then it would be sent into the English court to be um, judged by the appeals court for prizes. Um, the curious thing about um, appeals from the Irish, the High Court of Admiralty in Ireland, um, is that they only seem to write about three or four words on every single line with quite big spaces, like you can see here in these appeal papers. Um, we're not quite sure why, but we speculate maybe the clerks were paid by page that they wrote or something like that. We get them in these bound volumes. Anyway, these have transcriptions of the court cases, transcriptions of the documents in them. So in a sense, they have the same content as the other cases where we have ship's papers, but they're just um, they're just copied out. Now, in the past, these were not catalogued at all, but I've recently catalogued all of the appeal papers for um, for the 1740s, the period of Austrian succession. We have quite a lot of entries from Irish High Court of Admiralty, um, the Irish High Court of Admiralty, as we've got featured here on the catalogue entry on the left. So that's court papers. Now I'd like to move on to talk to you a bit about ship's papers which I would classify as any materials taken from a ship that directly relate to its voyage. So when the set, when the captor ships took an enemy vessel, they would scoop up a lot of the papers which relate to the ship, its official documentation into a bundle, and they would sort of bring it in and take it eventually to the High Court of Admiralty in London. And we still have them in this form, like you can see here often, all kinds of papers, and then they string them together, num number them, and keep them as exhibits in the case if they so need them. Now I'd say that we get two kinds of material that we regard in ship's papers. The first, uh, the first are kind of official documents and here we've got some from a ship called the Sami of Limerick. Now Sami of Limerick was taken in 1691 after it was sailing out of uh, Limerick itself and it was bound for Ostend. It was captured en route, but here this is a ship's pass issued to them um, under the authority of James II, so that should have been a pretty easy capture for the uh, for the English privateer, the Williamite privateer, should we call him, to uh, to prove if they had a pass, ship's pass from James II. Ship's pass just grants permission um, to the to the captain to proceed on their voyage. So we get those official papers, we get a lot of customs papers, that sort of thing throughout the collection, and these are relatively common. Many captures will have these. The other category I would put under ship's papers is something we refer to as pocket fodder. Now, pocket fodder is often just things that were in the sailors' pockets when the when the ship was captured in their waistcoat, anywhere really. Just all kinds of things. They're usually very very rough materials. Here we have a notebook from the same ship, Sammy of Limerick. This is the notebook of John Carter, the ship's captain. You can see that, uh, just about see that it's got rough notes on the left-hand side, just kind of jottings, working out sums he would have done while he was on the ship. But on the right-hand side, we also see he's going putting down notes of his cargo. Um, and even underneath it, he has a note which says, uh, quote, sent the black horse to Isaac Millman's to grass, 21, 21st of March, 1685. So actually a lot of the notes can go back before the voyage itself, their notebooks they've held for a long time, and you get all kinds of interesting bits of de details and sort of insights into the personality of the people who have these kinds of volumes. Alongside these, you get all kinds of receipts, anything that a sailor, sailors really could have kept in their pockets. Very interesting. 
sometimes you get them like in this case, they're sort of like ego documents. And they provide insights into the lives of the, of the person. Which brings us uh, neatly to uh, talking about the, uh, the, the, now we're getting to some of the more uncommon categories of documents or collections of documents and prize papers. We're talking about personal archives. So collections of documents that provide evidence of a single person's activities. Sometimes captors would choose to confiscate all of a particular individual's papers, and then they're archived as a single collection by the court. Now, personal archives can be really quite extensive. I have a colleague who used the personal archive of a Hamburg trader in the prize papers as actually as the basis for his PhD thesis. But the example I've got here, which, you, which I'm displaying now, is from the personal archive of somebody called John Davies. Now, John Davies was um, originally from Carmarthen in Wales, but a long time resident of uh, Dublin. And he was the captain of this ship here called the Ovas of Lisbon. Now, his archive is um, essentially a, a large commonplace book with all his jottings in it, small notebooks and um, a collection of letters and papers. Now, letters and papers were actually noted in the court papers as being found inside, sewn inside his waistcoat on capture, which would suggest he was up to something. And then they also found his booklets um, under a pile of old sailcloths as if he kind of shoved them there while they were being pursued before they were captured. So he was obviously trying to hide some of the information. Um, just to run through some of the interesting material that he's got in his uh, commonplace book here. He seems to have used the book predominantly for um, navigation exercises, so problems that he copies out and then solves. And we also get a lot of this, like he's, he, he's, drawn, a, um, he's drawn a title page for his for the volume and kind of a drawing of a bird underneath. All of this is quite standard. There's a lot of a lot of time when you're at sea. You do a lot of scribbling, a lot of drawings, a lot of doodles, that sort of thing. But turning the pages, the longer, the, the further you get into the volume, the fewer materials that he, the fewer, um, fewer pages you see that are actually dedicated to navigation exercises, kind of like his mind is wandering. So on the left here, he's noted a song you can't quite read there, but it's called uh, The Flowers of Edinburgh, which is a relatively common 18th century uh, folk tune. So he's jotted down the lyrics there, probably, um, probably from memory. And then he uh, writes poetry in his commonplace book um, as well here. Terrible poetry. Sailors wrote a lot of poetry when they were on, the, on their ships. This is kind of a sort of uh, like a lovesick, uh, a lovesick poem. One passage in it reads as, how foolish I was to believe she could dote on so lowly a clown, or that a fond heart would not grieve to forsake the fine folk of the town. So obviously a romance that's not quite going the way that John imagined it would do. And then the, a couple of pages later, um, we find this interesting draft of a love letter pictured on the left. It's one of the strangest love letters I've ever read in the prize papers collection, which you get quite a lot of. It's largely full of grammatical puns. I mean, John was learning Portuguese at the time that he wrote this and includes lines such as, quote, far be it from me to decline this conjugation, unquote. So written to his love interest and, quote, I am not the first person that hath solicited you, solicited you to be subjunctive to his love, end quote. Really quite uh, quite terrible pondering. 
Um, and also moving on to some of the letters that he had. These were the letters which came from within his waistcoat, and they're both in English and uh, English and Portuguese. The letter pictured on the left here is in English um, from someone called William Fletcher, who was a Catholic priest at um, Seville, written, written, to, um, written to John. So Fletcher thanks him for bringing in a shipment of cheese and clothes from Ireland, which he thinks that he can sell, but begs him not to mention that he's brought, brought the items in as his rector would not allow him to act as a merchant, his rector in Seville. He also claims that he's procured John a piece of the true cross, so a relic as well. And on the right-hand side, we have a, uh, which is basically a letter of credit in Portuguese that he obtained. John John Davies uh, in Portuguese is uh, João de Santo uh, Davies, is how he records his name. And uh, yeah. So very common sort of document, letters of credit that you get there. And then in our final category, we have what are probably usually the most famous things that we get in the prize papers, which is our mail in transit. That is to say, letters, um, letters placed on ships intended to be sent from the port of origins to a kind of specified destination overseas. And generally, they don't have anything to do with the ship or the cargo on board. Um, what they would do most of the time that we think we've discovered is that if you wanted to send a letter from, for example, a Caribbean island to Europe, um, a sack would be put up in the tavern in the town on the island with the name of the ship and its destination. Um, if you wanted a letter delivered to that destination, then you would pay the fee for the postage and then you would put the letter into the sack and the ship would just kind of just take it. But we also find all kinds of other interesting letter practices in the in the uh, prize papers, like, like like we have pictured on the left here. Now these are letters that come from the two sisters of Dublin, which were transcribed for um, in Tom Trax's book. And on the left hand at the top left hand side, um, we have a letter which is addressed to Dublin. Um, but inside were many other letters, so you get packets of letters. Um, so inside that it looked like there were three other letters, which is why it's pushed to the right hand side of it, showing that three letters were inside the package on the left. And then inside one of those letters, which was to Galway, with three further letters inside, all of them to Galway. And then inside one of those letters to Galway with two, two further attachments. And we when we deal with mail in transit, we tend to number the documents so to reflect this kind of hierarchy. And when we digitize them, we show them in these kinds of um, trees that you can see here. The first of our two uh, sets of mail in transit, I wanted to draw some examples from a ship here called the Europa, of, uh, the Europa of Dublin. Um, now, the Europa of Dublin was a ship bound from Port Royal in Jamaica in 1756, transporting sugar, cotton, indigo, um, and uh, logwood to Dublin. The prior voyage, they likely transported enslaved people from the Guinea coast to Jamaica. Now, this uh, this um, ship had a large amount of mail in transit on it, English and Irish people all together, um, because Jam Jamaica by the mid 18th century was a, a lot of English people, a lot of Irish people. So on the on the left, I've included what's relatively common. These are kind of um, family correspondence from a lady called, um, I think you pronounce this as Ellie, uh, Ellie Ware, um, and it's a sort of standard letter to her brother stating that um, that she's been ill um, and she's sorry she hasn't written to him 
and she wants him to write back. Very common letter, just maintaining contact, um, maintaining contacts. But she also notes that she's got a fever and quote, our people dies here so fast. So obviously significant outbreak of disease that year in, uh, in Jamaica. Similar letter here on the right hand side from Edward, Edward Magna, um, who seems to have been a sailor at Port Royal. He writes to his mother in Dublin, uh, claims that he sent her his will, dramatic, uh, and his power of attorney while he was on the Guinea coast. So obviously he'd been on a slave trading voyage and he was very ill and he thought he wouldn't make it. He now says that he's joined it onto a British naval ship and they're about to cruise the Caribbean and try and take prizes, which he thinks is gonna make him rich. <clears throat> and then finally onto one of my favorite collections from the, um, from the prize papers of the War of the Austrian Succession. These are letters from the ship Franciscus Hamburg that was taken on its route from Santa Cruz, Tenerife to Hamburg. And it has an absolutely amazing collection of material um, with information about Irish communities in the, in the Canary Islands. So what you're looking at here is two letters in Spanish from Irish nuns in, uh, in Santa Cruz. Um, on, the, on the left, this, is, this Spanish letter is from um, a nun who signs herself off as Senora Frankly, uh, writing to a Dominican friar in Dunkirk. She's actually requesting new habits for the nuns as the habit, as woolen habits are far too heavy. So she requests linen habits and she's got a sample of the linen cloth attached there that she would like black, black linen. And on the right, we've got this kind of appealingly shaped letter, completely unsigned, but it has some kind of blessing on it in Spanish. Uh, speculate that perhaps they would sort of like bless some of these materials and then send them to sort of Dominicans, people in the same religious orders here in Dunkirk. And that was part of their kind of exchange. And finally, we have a piece of sheet music that was taken from that ship, manuscript music that was jotted down um, on the vessel. This is probably done from memory. At the top, we've got something which records itself as an Irish jig by Larry Grogan. Uh, this is another 18th century folk tune. If you Google it, um, or you look it up, you can see that the, the notes that were included here are kind of a simplified version of the original jig, and some of them are in fact, in fact, in fact, incorrect. They're sort of bum notes. So um, this was obviously done from memory, and we've got others which are recorded as a Scotch jig, Chark's hornpipe. Here is a, here's a song called "A Lovely Lass to a Friar Came," and finally snatches of a piece of handle called "Twas When the Sea Was Roaring." Okay, and I will I will finish there with the Franciscus of Hamburg, but with the note that while a lot of material in the prize papers have been discovered, we still have an enormous amount that we need to that we need to find, particularly from the period before the 1650s. And here I've just pictured um, a few different things that I found in it. There's a really disordered box over here, um, all from HCA 15, which is labeled as early prize. Um, and these, a lot of these are papers taken by um, parliaments, privateers during the civil wars. And a lot of these are from Irish Confederate ships, a surprising amount. So still some very interesting material, uh, material to be found. Okay, I'll finish that. Uh, thank you for, thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Oliver. That was absolutely fascinating. I'm sure
I'm sure nobody really uh, had any idea just how much variety there is in terms of the types of um, types of material in there. And I think maybe if I just start with a question on on that, while people are using the Q and A button to put in their their questions, um, it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? Because you've got um, this massive, you've got lyrics, objects, relics, commodities, people, diseases. Where do you even start in terms of designing the database for for that? Mm. And how will it be searchable? Right. So we had to, we've designed the entire database around what what we would call authority file. Sorry about that. I don't know if I lost you there. Yeah, we just lost you. You were muted for a second. We can hear you again. Sorry about that. I'm back now. <laughs> just get the light on as well. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so how we how do we start with how do we start with it? Well, you have to basically have a kind of fundamental element in the database that you use. And with us, basically, it was sort of there's a lot of moving parts in here. Do you organize it first and foremost by ship? Do you organize it by court case? What do you organize it all by? Um, and I think we arrived eventually at you have to organize it by individual document. And then the document is the most fundamental element of it. So the type of document is the fundamental aspect. And then around that, you have to build out all of the different kinds of subject. You have to agree kind of categories of things that you record from the document, right? So we agreed things like subjects, people mentioned subjects is a very valuable category because you can put a lot of things into subject and it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to a person. Um, and then you have to record things like people. You have to kind of sit down and look at the documents and run through it and think, what are all the possible things that somebody might be able to get out of this document? And then you have to kind of write them down, group them together, discuss, 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 consult all different kinds of people in how they would use it. And then you have to narrow it down for the searchability um, in terms of what's actually going to be used um, and what isn't, and what do you have the resource to dedicate um, to getting that metadata around that document to make it searchable. But what we've come up with in the end um, is that the way that the material is gonna be searchable in the online database is very, very versatile because we have, it's essentially like you can layer different area, different characteristics into the search um, to say, you can start out and you can say, I want all letters in French from this date, okay, to this date, basic. I want all letters in French, and you can use it, all letters in French from sent from Nantes to Martinique by women between this date and this date that mention this subject. Hmm. So instead of um, we've got quite a lot of categories, and it does create quite a lot of work in terms of the um, the searchability. But we think that it's necessary to make such a large collection usable in the end because otherwise navigating it is complicated and it requires a lot of knowledge of um, bureaucracies and court processes that people simply don't have the time or in many places the inclination you know, to necessarily learn when you can find material elsewhere. Mm. Well, presumably so, if, you, if you wanted to do a study of the history of sugar or of indigo or of tobacco or something, you would be able to use it for those kinds of projects as well? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's really I, good. You can do it two ways. You, you can do it, you'll be able to search it just on the keyword sugar or tobacco. 
and you'll be able to search by ship and you'll just find a ship that was carrying those. And then you should be able also to search it by the letters that mention it. So if it's mentioned, you should be able to do that too, depending upon how you want to enter, from which angle you want to enter the database, shall we say. Okay, yeah. there's some questions in the in the Q&A um, section now. So an anonymous uh, attendee says, um, of what you've read and catalogued, is there much valuable information about the wars themselves? Um, so espionage or spies. And there was a question underneath that was quite similar. Mm -hmm. So is there material from the American Revolution from Michael Casey? Yeah, I would say, uh, so answering the first one, um, lots to do with the wars themselves. Um, that is definitely one aspect of what we do. Um, it's, you're probably going to find that mostly in the, um, in the court papers. So you'll find a lot of that in the deposition. Say, for example, you're interested in a particular battle, um, a naval battle, then you can search our catalogue, the National Archives catalogue actually, um, already by that battle, and we will have noted that. And then you can read the depositions and they'll talk about the battle, what's happened. You'll also get correspondence in some cases um, talking about battles, say if they a privateer gets captured or a, a naval warship gets captured, they might take correspondence after that and retain it. There's all kinds of places that it might, it might exist in. And indeed in the online database, warfare will be a category that we would be a subject that you should be able to search by when it's online. I, one thing I would note, of course, with this is a lot of that material is, I would say a, a lot of that's going to be in French um, because a lot of it's going to be taken to the simple fact that the English and the French fought each other so much in the 18th century. They took a lot of French ships. So there'll be a lot on that. But you will find, if you were looking for the periods of, say, for example, the late 17th century and the early 18th century, I would say that you're going to find a decent amount to do with Jacobite correspondence and that aspect of warfare as well, the earlier parts, early 1690s, the Jacobite Wars, you'll get them because they're taking Jacobite ships all the time. And then the subsequent, if we're talking about espionage, there are definitely papers that relate to that. I can give you one example of a very bizarre ship. It's not actually Irish, but it is a kind of espionage element where it's a ship that was um, taking troops to facilitate the um, 1745 Jacobite uprising in Scotland and they pretended they were going to Boston it's a ship with the providence of Boston and uh, they took on everything they took on post going for Boston they did everything nobody had any idea in the crew and then they took themselves uh, to the west of Scotland and disembarked there and the captain disappeared and then he went off and he came back with someone called James Stewart who was like a relation of um, yeah a, a Stewart relation of some kind and uh, yeah, so it turned out to be that it was it was just a ruse, the fact that it was ever pretending that it was going to Boston. But we have all the papers. So if you're interested in the funny thing about this collection, if you're interested in papers for Boston, they're pretty good, actually. They're really interesting. But also, if you're interested in material to do with the Jacobite uprising and kind of all of the espionage that goes around it, you could read the court papers. So there is. Yes, but it's a question of sort of keywords and how you would search for it. That's definitely something we would record. You could probably look that up now if you had the right search terms in the National Archives database. Um, American Revolution question, absolutely loads. Um, so an unbelievable amount, actually. Um, I have a colleague, um, Dr. Randolph Cock, if anybody wanted to get in touch with him. Um, he is working on the papers for the American Revolution right now. 
I didn't include that in my presentation because I don't work on that area. But I would say the later you get, the more the papers are there. There are papers. So the earlier periods just get, it just gets enormous. Once you get to the period of we go up to the Napoleonic Wars. So the papers for the Napoleonic Wars, um, they are as large in terms of content as all of the wars that come before them. So if we got 4,800 4, boxes, 2,400 of those are Napoleonic Wars. So absolutely vast. So American Revolution material is our biggest collection in English for obvious reasons. Thanks, Oliver. Um, a question from, from Liam Chambers, who says, an incredible project, and thanks for a wonderful presentation. Um, he wants to know, how typical or atypical is the Bordeaux-Dublin 1757 collection, and should we expect similar riches from other files? Um, so, yeah, I flagged one up that uh, Tom Truxes is already working on now, which is the Amity of Limerick, which is a similar collection from um, 1691. I would say that the earlier you go, um, generally, the smaller the collections of papers are, um, and the later you go, the bigger they get. So the Bordeaux Dublin with two sisters, um, that ship is quite big, but it's from the Seven Years' War. We actually haven't worked through that war particularly well yet, so who knows what we have in there. Yeah, so I guess there's two answers to this question. One is, A, yes, I can think of quite a few of them. So that Europa of Dublin one that I mentioned briefly in the presentation, that's really quite large. Sherilyn Hag uh, Professor Sherilyn Haggerty is working on some papers from that um, now. But like with all of these collections, um, there's not just one person's worth of use out of them all, you know. Um, so there are some that exist that are as large as the Bordeaux Dublin letters, certainly. Franciscus of Hamburg, which I've finished on, that is one that I would absolutely recommend. It's superb. And that is going to be one of the first collections that we digitize. So sometime kind of May time, that will be up. That's very big. It's as big as Bordeaux Dublin, um, Bordeaux Dublin letters, possibly bigger in terms of the number of letters, but more of the materials in Spanish um, than French because it comes from the Canary Islands. So you've got those papers, a lot of stuff from religious communities, Irish merchants there, also English Catholic merchants. There's quite a lot of them around as well. Um, so the answer is absolutely yes. Um, but I would advi advise anybody to be kind of like creative with how you search for it. Because like I said, Franciscus of Hamburg is not a ship that you would get where you would immediately think, oh, this has hundreds of letters from Irish people in it. Mm. Um, particularly, you know, not in English. So yeah, we, we try to, I try to include these things in the catalog, so you should be able to find them. Um, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> and if you want to do your own searching and you, you want to look at a later period, there will be a lot more that are very large particularly American Revolutionary Wars and Napoleonic Wars. Um, Quiva uh, wants to know, does the mail in transit that's captured ever get delivered? And I guess a, a related question to that, um, who has the, um, the luxury of being the first person to open some of those letters that haven't been opened in hundreds of years? Like <laughs> the volunteers, if they get to do that first, yeah. that's very exciting, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so mail in transit, um, there's some interesting things here. So if they get restored, they'll get delivered because if the ship wasn't captured legitimately in the eyes of this court, then they'll get restored to the original owners and then they just get delivered. So there's that aspect. But if they get, the ship gets condemned, then it sits in the High Court of Admiralty's 
wherever we don't know i don't think we quite know where they stored it somewhere near doctor's commons or something like that admiralty registry wherever that was and um it will never be it will never be delivered um so that would be a lot of the time the court opened those they seem to if it was a more dispute we seem to get larger collections this is kind of is not proven but my theory is that you get larger collections of letters where the case is more complicated and it's more disputed so they'll just say if it's a french privateer they capture for example all they need to take is the letter of mark because that proves that it's an enemy vessel you don't need anything more than that whereas if it's like a neutral ship and it's they're denying it and they've got multiple sets of ships papers on board and all of this stuff then they'll probably take everything because it's a more complicated case. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, if your ship gets condemned, it never gets delivered. But if it gets restored, then it will do. Um, in terms of who opens them, well, this is a conversation <laughs> we have a lot um, because you get sometimes they haven't opened them. You you really do get the sense when you get those selections of mail in transit out that some clerk or somebody was sat there ripping them open, trying to work out what was useful because a lot of it looks like it's been done in an extremely unceremonious way it's a very unceremonious collection it's just kind of everything is rough um sometimes you get things like they've tried to destroy a document on the ship um before it's captured because it says something that's going to lead to it being condemned and you can see they've stitched it back together in this kind of frankenstein creation and they've done it so roughly like twine and yeah it's very rough and ready um, but the, the, we used to get the cons conservation department to open sealed letters. They would kind of cut around the seal with a scalpel and then they would um, and then open them and then try and keep them, you know, in as good a condition as possible. Because obviously being sealed, it does keep them pretty well. Um, nowadays, we actually don't tend to open them anymore because there's this conversation that goes on about whether we should. Um, and there, we've been experimenting with technologies that show the insides of the letters. Um, so you can scan inside and reproduce them digitally without ever opening them. Oh, wow, uh, that's, that's, that's a moral dilemma I hadn't even thought about. I was really <laughs> imagining how, they, how exciting it would be to sort of delve into them, but that's, that's, that's oh, interesting. Yeah. Can I ask a question about the materiality? Because you mentioned material culture and I've seen sure. pictures of rings there and various objects and things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure I read on, on the website that there were seeds found um, yep. So can you just say a little bit about, I presume that lends itself to all kinds of interdisciplinary research with, uh, you know, archaeologists and, and things like that. What about, mm. um, you mentioned cloth, but what about food and more perishable types of material mm. culture that might survive in that in that way? Unfortunately, I'm, I'm yet to see food. Um, we get recipes is the closest thing that we would get to that. Quite a few different recipes for food and drink. Um, a lot of records of food that was transported, that was consumed, mm. a lot of things like that, but no food itself, unfortunately, it's too perishable. I won't discount the possibility yeah. because I find found insects, which you would think would break down um, when they get stuck inside a volume or something it, and the paper seems to dry them out and preserve them quite well. So I wouldn't discount it. Um, I haven't seen it so far. The closest kind of organic matter that we've got is yeah seeds, seeds yeah. and insects basically seeds you get quite a bit and then i guess you get the, uh, textiles seem to preserve pretty well yeah um wool samples are pretty common 
things like uh, you get a lot of buttons. And then in cases we got silks. Um, yeah, unfortunately, no food. But, um, well, the seeds would allow you to identify foods that mightn't survive in the ground as archaeologists. That's really exciting if you could identify what they were. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I have to say, I don't think we've made as much of the seeds as we might do. That we we did plant before my time on this project when they first started looking at these things. They took some seeds to Kew Gardens, and they planted some of them, and then a few of them germinated. Oh, wow. Um, so one of them was the National Flower of South Africa. It was from a Dutch East India Company ship. And it's still there, I think, uh, um, somewhere. I tried to find it once when I went there, but I couldn't see it. I think you have to know where it is. But uh, that one, that one's there. And then I have found other packages of seeds recently. We thought that was the only one we had so far. But until we get into a lot of that, I think once we get into the material from the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, where they captured a lot of East in Dutch East India Company ships, then we'll start seeing a lot of things like that, a lot more material culture objects as well. Oh, that's really exciting. And I guess one, because it has uh, one final question. Um, mm. Or is there another one here? Hang on. Okay, so um, somebody wants to know about women. Are they present in the papers? And under what category have you noticed them? Um, mm. Court cases, male in transit, etc. Very common, yes. Um, unfortunately, I had, I had a deposition by... Um, by a woman that I was going to put in, but unfortunately I had to cut it for time. Um, they are very much, I would say, um, because the logic when you've got mail in transit, a whole sort of sack of it, um, it does not very, it doesn't discriminate. They haven't thrown certain ones away and they haven't kept others. So you will get a lot of letters from women about collections of mail in transit. That's very common. If I were to give it a percentage, I would put it at something like 15% roughly of those will be from women. Um, lots of different subjects. Um, we get a lot of women acting as merchants. That's incredibly common, actually. Um, maybe more common than I was expecting. I don't know. They Generally, they're widows. Generally, they're widows who've inherited property. But that is not uncommon at all. Um, that's kind of, yeah, you do get that. Um, and then women as passengers. That's common as well. Um, I haven't seen any personal archives of women, unfortunately, just yet. Um, but yes, like we had some of that, that correspondence on the Franciscus of Hamburg. That's from, uh, that was from, those were from nuns. Um, yeah, they, they definitely are throughout. And in terms of the database, we, um, have created women as, um, kind of like men or women as kind of searchable in the way that, um, all of the people mentioned in it will be created as what we call authority files, as kind of entities in the database. And they will have characteristics like what their religion was, what their, what their gender was, all, the, all these kinds of factors. So you'll be able to search for it that way. So you'll be able to put in kind of like people under that category, women, and then search for them that way. So yeah, it should be utility. But I would say with all of this, the metadata stuff is that it's a gradual process. It's a lot of metadata to generate. So when things first go up, it will have basic metadata. Um, and then over time, we will add to it in different areas. We want to get as much up as, as possible um, for people. So I would urge people to have a route around, even if that doesn't necessarily turn up immediate, um, immediate um, results. Final final question, Oliver. Um, what's mm. the, the most interesting thing? I suppose the thing that you found most interesting or exciting um, in mm. those records or objects. 
Mm, that's tough. I, 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 okay. What, what, what? I, yeah. Um, I, I think that you can't get around the idea that the objects are just fascinating mm -hmm. um, when you get them. I've got a lot of things which, from kind of just an academic perspective, I think they're very interesting. You know, letters or they say, "Oh, this is fantastic, this person." But I can't get past just the kind of basic element of there's a uh, there's one French slave trade ship. It's called um, the Ocean uh, Lotion, um, and it has a quite sack that's from the basically the modern day Dominican Republic that the letters were in. It's quite large, but it's kind of, we've still got the original textiles of that. That's an amazing object because it's so obviously kind of like African craftsmanship that you can see that's been kind of brought over into the Caribbean and created there. That was a pretty good find. Another thing was um, kind of an embroidered piece of fabric from a ship from Peru. It's embroidered with um, like religious symbols, mostly crosses and things like that. And then that was from a priest was sending to his mother in Spain and he blessed that. And that was supposed to be protection. Um, that was pretty, that was a pretty good find. Uh, so yeah, I put those as my favorite two things that I've found. Um, I found a cockroach once, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite. <laughs> Which turned out to be a surprisingly good rabbit hole. That one might be one of the earliest examples of cockroach migration to the Americas that exists or something like that. Well, an actual um, curated exhibition on the material culture would probably be something that could happen in the future because this seems to be that quite would a lot of, That would be amazing, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah the, the tough things with exhibitions on this subject is there's so much that you could put in that you have to accept. Yeah, like this on some level, it will be more than one exhibition or it is more than one exhibition's worth of material. So, it, you know, we could do one of letters, but yeah, material objects would be good. We're doing a lot with our conservation science department now um, with the material objects, but there's still a lot, a lot that we could do, a lot of objects that we haven't done much with. So um, on that respect, if anybody is interested in anything in this collection that you hear about, please do get in touch with me um, or anybody else on my team. Uh, on the on the prize papers team, um, we're very happy to make suggestions based on your research because it's all in our heads, you know, <laughs> um, and very open to collaboration as well. Um, we have collaborated with a lot of people if there's anything that's of interest. So, so the anonymous um, anonymous attendee wants to know: Can anybody volunteer? I think you've been recruiting while you. That <laughs> <laughs> might be bad opening letters, but yeah, is there is there a possibility? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can way? be. Unfortunately, you'd have to get yourself to queue. Um, if you wanted to volunteer. Um, I don't know if we have much online. We do, you can't, in all seriousness, I think you might be able, you, you could, but if you wanted to be physically working with the documents, you'd have to be, uh, you'd have to be in London. Um, I don't know if the question is from someone in London, but um, yeah, yeah, if you are, volunteer and say you'd like to work on prize papers, we can, we can always use people. <laughs> uh, that was absolutely fantastic and I mean it, you know it's, it's the kind of theme and source that just appeals to everyone there's something for everyone mm -hmm. it's really inclusive isn't it and it sounds like what you're doing will open up lots of new um new research but you know projects on things like gender and material culture and that as well as the sort of mm -hmm. political side of it too so it was really yeah, great yeah. to hear about it and to hear about the Irish um, aspect mm. of it specifically and thanks everyone for the for the questions a great a great presentation um so thank you again for for, for joining us um, and yes. before we go can i just um mention that edmund russell 
um, is speaking next week um, from Carnegie Mellon on um, Greyhound Nation, a co-evolutionary history of England, 1200 to 1900. So don't forget to register and, and join us for, for that again. Um, and again, thank you very much, uh, Oliver. Thank and you. we look for, where can we follow along? Just, um, I presume on social media, but where, where will you be announcing as each stage is released on the database and things like that? I, I suggest for database material, um, I suggest following the official prize paper Twitter for anybody who's interested. Um, I think it's simply at prize papers on Twitter. Um, and I post quite a bit on my Twitter about um, discoveries that I make on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, get all kinds of results from it so all kinds of interesting discussions and i'm at oj underscore um fin f-i-n-n um so you can follow me for the kind of initial discoveries official announcements come from the yeah the, pri the prize papers twitter and that's run by the oldenburg side great yeah. that's okay. why you're in the database okay thank you very much again and um see you all see you all thanks, next season. week for more okay thanks bye-bye thank you for coming okay. bye bye the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.